Welcome to Cannabis Health Radio, a podcast where we share stories from people around the world who are using cannabis as medicine. The information is meant to raise awareness about the health benefits of cannabis, which should not be taken as medical advice. Now, here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. Welcome to another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup. And I'm Corey Yelland. As a result of a diving accident in 1990, our guest today suffered a spinal cord injury that left him a paraplegic. And since that time, he's used cannabis to suppress the spasms from his industry. He's a prolific writer, having written several books about diet and health, with his new book, Mindful Marijuana Smoking, which i got to ask him about that. He was Connecticut's poster child for the legalization of medical marijuana from 1997 until its passage into law in 2012. And joining us from Connecticut to tell his story is Mark Matthew Brownstein. Mark, very good of you to do this. We appreciate it. And how old were you when you had your diving accident? Uh, I was 39. I'm now 71. So 32 years, uh, years ago. Oh, wow. Tell us what happened. Just um, a fun thing hiking in the woods with friends, came upon a footbridge over a river where there was a large waterfalls. And wherever there's a waterfalls, there's also right below it, a very large pool underneath. So um, local farmers were jumping off the footbridge feet first into the river. And they'd been doing it for years, all their lives there, making it look fun and, e- and easy. I was the only one among my group of friends who decided I was going to come and join them and got up onto the footbridge and Figure you can't hurt yourself, go feet first, but I proved otherwise. You, I landed on my ass, and just the surface of the water is very hard at 60 feet, remember. Okay, I didn't try to go head first because you can kill yourself that way with a broken neck. I went feet first, landed on my ass, shock went up the spinal cord. At the T12, there's a bend. It shattered. One of the shards went into the spinal cord. The other's burst fracture went out. Wow. So it was the actual hitting the water. Yes. Water is a very hard surface. Bullets ricochet off of water. Yeah. I didn't know that. Wow. Well, from 60 feet, it gets, becomes even harder. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. So. Did you know immediately that this was a major uh-uh? Yes, because there was pain. And um, when I tried to, you know, I hit, went underwater and then... When it was time now to swim back up, it seemed a very, very long time because I figure I'm kicking with my feet and using my hands, but I was only using my hands. So it took a long, long time. And then when I got there, I I realized my feet weren't doing much of anything. I was just dog paddling hands. Then when I got to the ledge, then I couldn't get up. So the rest is history then. (laughs) Did your friends realize right away that something was amiss? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Two of the farmers, they suggested that they just take me and put them up on their shoulders and get me up this trail because it's it's a long trail to get back up to the road from where the footbridge was. But my my girlfriend, who has medical background, her, her mother was a doctor, said, "Don't you touch him? You leave him right there." <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so we had had to wait for the appropriate rescue team. So that must have been a heck of a long wait. 
two hours. Yeah, well, must I? I mean, I, I would think that in that position, although you're probably in a bit of shock, that it would just every minute would seem like a lifetime. Uh, I I guess so, but you know, I, I remember everything very distinctly. Mm. I remember the two hours laying there and conversing. You know, as long as I was immobile, I wasn't in pain. It was just, and the movement hurt my back, but just laying there didn't, so. When the doctors told you you wouldn't walk again. Ah, let me stop you right there. Okay. They do not tell you that, maybe in the old days, but remember 1990, things were changing. At that time, there was a new procedure where administering a particular steroid soon upon injury was found to reduce the swelling, and it's the swelling that causes the damage to the spinal cord. So at, even in 1990, there was a football player, NFL, who was injured on the field. They administered it within like 10 minutes of the injury. He was able to because of that lack of the damage, he was able to actually walk again with no, without even crutches. I, however, 32 years post-injury, I'm still walking with crutches. Oh, okay. All right? My injury was an incomplete T12, functionally L3, L4, if that means anything to you, meaning that I do have upper leg muscles. So I walk with crutches and, and short leg braces. And there's nothing remarkable in that. That's just the level of my injury. If I have to say there's some something to seem remarkable, it's the fact that 32 years post-injury, I'm still walking with crutches. Most people's shoulders or their quadriceps or their legs give out, and I'm still going. So, so what's your secret? Proper diet and mm-hmm. um, not administering pharmaceutical drugs, which brings us to why we're here today. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> I've always been a, a very conscientious uh, person in terms of diet. No white flour, no white sugar, strict vegan, mostly raw foods. And I didn't use any pharmaceutical drugs until 1990. Of course, in the hospital, they were administered. During the procedure mm-hmm. of the, the surgery, they were administered. But after my discharge from the hospital, once again, no pharmaceutical drugs. And those pharmaceutical drugs were being given to you for pain, correct? I never took them. Not even at the hospital? No, no. In fact, I don't want to sound very boastful, but I was in a striker frame for the first week. A striker frame is like this human rotisserie where you just, you're on, on a, a frame and they flip the frame every two hours because they don't want you to have a, any kind of a pressure sore if you just lay mm-hmm. in the same position, especially if you're not moving and not feeling. Pressure sores are very, very um, common in that case. So every two hours when I was being flipped, it's very painful. I did that one week in the striker frame without any painkillers. They wanted to administer the um, morphine. And they would, I think even at that time, they were giving me a button that I could press. I never pressed it. All right. I think if you pressed it, then you couldn't, it wouldn't be administered in, except for another two hours later. And I never pressed the button. In 1994, I happened to fracture my, my leg. And this time in surgery in the hospital, I told them, don't even connect the morphine. I am not going to touch it. I like to take the pain. Why? Because if you don't have feeling in certain parts of your body, parts where you do have feeling, you actually can appreciate the fact that you could feel pain. 
So I do administer marijuana and cannabis about once every two days to suppress the spasms from spinal cord injury, which are the same thing as in multiple sclerosis. The injury to the spinal cord is to totally different. With, with multiple sclerosis, it's more like an, an, a disease, uh, an illness. In spinal cord injury, it's an injury, but they're both affecting the spinal cord. Multiple sclerosis, they also have the spasms and the accompanying pain from the spasms. So you've probably had several guests on your show already with multiple sclerosis for that reason. Yeah. Uh, my understanding is I'm probably the first one with spinal cord injury. There's far more patients in terms of the population with MS than with SCI. Now, Mark, you wrote a book recently called Mindful Marijuana Smoking. And I don't smoke very often because I cough a lot. Mm -hmm. So what am I doing wrong? Ah, okay. The subtitle explains it. Health tips for cannabis smokers. Okay. All right. The first thing that everyone, oh, well, almost everyone does wrong until maybe they learn otherwise. And that's why I've been teaching people, I guess. That's is, why you're here. Right. People tend to hold their breath on the inhale. Hold that smoke in. Everyone was taught that way when we first started smoking. I started smoking in high school as a teenager yeah. in the 1960s. That is totally unnecessary. The fact is cannabinoids and terpenes both are both oil-soluble. When they coat the cilia and the alveoli, the inner, the fragile inner linings of the lungs, they're immediately absorbed. But the tars are not fat-soluble. And those take much longer to absorb into the inner linings of the lungs. So when you hold it in, you're only causing yourself to absorb more tar. Tar does not get you high. Tar only makes you sick. Tar only is what gives you the cough and everything, okay? So the fact is, the proper way of smoking, and this has been proven through several scientific experiments during the 1990s, all you have to do is inhale and exhale as though you're just naturally breathing because the amount of cannabinoids that you're going to absorb will be no different whether you exhale it immediately or whether you keep it in your lungs for half a minute, which most people try to do. I see a big smile on one of your faces when I'm telling you this. Okay, now, having learned that and having done it that way ever since, I never cough when I smoke. Everyone else tends to, if you cough, you cough on the inhale, you know, on, on the, when you hold that, when you're on that hold. And, and whenever I smoke with people with using my pipe, I use a very long, long stem segmented wooden pipe. The long stem cools it down. There's two bad things about smoke. Mm -hmm. Besides the smoke itself, it's hot and it's dry. And a long stem cools the smoke so that by the time it reaches your mouth and your throat, you don't even feel it because you don't feel any heat. So when people smoke with my pipe, I always have to tell them, don't take so much. You don't feel it. Take very yeah. little. And they, they inhale a lot. They don't listen to me. They take in a lot. And they end up coughing it because they're taking in so much. Okay? Because they don't realize how much because they're not feeling it. So the important thing is you want to keep it cool with a, with a long stem pipe. I happen to use a wooden one, but the only long stem ones I can find are, are wooden. Okay? So... 
and has to be segmented so you can clean the tar out of it. This tar will indeed accumulate on the inner walls of the pipe. Okay, So that's two bad things about smoking that can be very easily improved. This is fascinating, you know. I, I, I mean, I have a friend who's a long-term heavy, heavy cannabis smoker. And inevitably, he's turning red in the face, going, as he's trying to hold this yeah. in all the time. I look at him, yeah. going, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Now, Very interesting. Just explain to him, try it. Like, what I tell people, if they don't want to believe me, they don't want to believe the scientific experiments, that there's many, I cite them all, and they're in a footnoted with, if you happen to buy the um, the ebook, you just click on the links to all the scientific experiments. I do have on my website all these citations. It's about 270 different endnotes for all of my claims are all backed up by scientific studies. And so if someone happens to buy the print book, go to my website. I've got a PDF there of all of the links. You can just click on it then. Well, if you don't even want to read that, what I tell people is take two quantities of your of your stash, equal amounts, smoke one the same way you always do, wait a day or two, clear your head. That's I always like to clear my head. Two days is what I need. And then smoke that other batch, that same quantity, but try not holding it in, just inhaling and exhaling. And then see if you get just as high or if it just as much alleviates whatever malady that you're treating with with the cannabis medicinally and everyone who does that all agrees they no longer no longer need to hold it in hold so, it in wow yeah. so for listeners who are interested in maybe uh getting uh your book or books i believe what are the names of them well my first book came out in 1981 radical vegetarianism it's called radical then because it was the first book on veganism and no one even knew what the word vegan meant back then, so you couldn't call it radical veganism. So it was, at that time, it was radical. It's no longer radical now. Yeah. Second book was on sprouting, which is an advanced form of veganism, you know, homegrown sprouts, how-to how book. Third book was microgreen garden, how to grow microgreens, an advanced form of sprouting. Right? Fourth book was called Good Girls on Bad Drugs. It's about all of those other drugs out there. I interviewed various addicts of my local uh, area here and wrote their stories. Half of my book is their own words where I recorded them, and the other half is my text. You know, we're talking about crack, coke, heroin, and alcohol. Right. Yeah. Right. Probably the most toxic drug of all recreational drugs and probably the most harmful to society of all recreational drugs is alcohol. And then my next, my fifth book, I had to, I had to self-publish uh, Good Girls on Bad Drugs. No problem. I already knew Photoshop, so I designed the cover myself and the interior um, photos. I learned in design just enough to do the book design myself. Having mastered both Photoshop and InDesign, I figured, let me put out a book now, and I'm not even going to bother looking for a publisher. I know no one's going to want to publish it. It was a book about death. That's called Final Thoughts. That's my fifth book. And then my sixth book, which just came out in July, three months ago, is Mindful Marijuana Smoking, Health Tips for Cannabis Smokers. It's published by Roman Littlefield, which is a very large academic press, very well known to 
both public libraries and college and university libraries, because many of the books that they publish are, are sold to libraries more than just just you know consumers such as you and I. It is a, indeed a, a scholarly book. It has all the documentation there for people to track down if they want to see my claims. I've got a sequel for your book, Good Girls and Bad Drugs, Bad uh-huh. Girls and Good Drugs. <laughs> I call myself a bad boy on a good drug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, Corey, go ahead. Yeah, no go worries. When, when did you first start using cannabis? Like, did you start using cannabis when you were injured or did you have some use prior to that? And after you were injured, when did you bring that on board? And when did you realize that that could be totally sufficient for keeping that inflammation down? I was a high school teenager in the 60s smoking pot, you know, once, twice a week on the weekends. And I continued that all the rest of my life till 1990. I'm injured. Okay. Uh, my girlfriend would come and visit me at the hospital. And uh, I was in Gaylord Hospital, which is a, a rehab hospital in, the, in a nice rural setting. It's a cornfield on one side, a golf course on the other, woods left and right. So we would go outside and smoke, you know, sneak a joint. When I'm in the spinal cord injury ward, maybe every two or three days, you don't get the spasms the first month or so. The spinal cord is still in shock. And spinal shock is basically you don't know what you're going to get back anyway. It takes about four or five weeks before some return begins. It's happened with me. So I, I didn't have any spasms at the first month anyway. I was in the hospital for four months because I was learning ambulating with walking and crutch, with uh, leg braces and crutches. And then uh, discharged, went home, went back to work about two weeks later. I've been, uh, since, as a paraplegic, I remained employed full-time until my retirement just nine years ago, which is also perhaps uh, an exception to the rule in terms of uh, spinal cord injury, paraplegia, quadriplegia. And when we got home, my girlfriend and I, I'd go off to work, and I started smoking maybe once every night with her because, you know, I deserve it, right? (laughs) And I wasn't getting any spasms. I knew other spinal cord injury patients in the spinal cord injury ward were. Okay. So all is well. And then, as always would occur, there's a certain point when I was smoking, even if it was only once every two days eventually, get tired of it, you get to a point, you don't get as high, so you clean out, you go, it's like going fasting. You just stop smoking. Never any withdrawals on my part, because I never smoked that much anyway. So I stopped smoking for about a month, because I knew when I went back to smoking, oh, I'll enjoy the high even more. During that month, I started getting spasms for my first time. Went back Mm. to smoking, you know, Spasms went away. Didn't really connect it too much. Stopped smoking for another maybe month. Spasms disappeared. Oh, all of a sudden, I started making a connection. Remember, this is 1990, 1991. This is before there was an internet, basically. I mean, the internet as it existed yeah. was called Mosaic. There's nothing on it, okay? So at that time... I was subscribed to a magazine for spinal cord injury, and there was advertisements in it by Robert Randall, who had a publishing company. Robert Randall was the first patient 
in the United States to get special approval to use marijuana for treating his glaucoma. Mm-hmm. All right. And he started a press called Galen Press. Galen was some uh, scientist, scientist from the late Renaissance. And he published all this documentation that otherwise was not readily available in a, in a book form. And one of the books that he put out, which was published in 1991, is Muscle Spasms, Pain, and Marijuana therapy. Marijuana therapy, all right? Yep. Which he reprinted the 1987, 1988 DEA hearings, the Drug Enforcement Agency hearings, where patients for the first time testified about their use of marijuana to the feds in Washington, D.C. And other people testified, including Andrew Weil. He was not very well known then. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, he was doing things promoting alternative therapies. He knew about marijuana back then for various illnesses. He was one of the persons testified. Lester Grinspoon, very famous name for us now. He was another one who testified back then in 1987, 1988, before the committees of the DEA. All right, so I learned, ah, there's a lot of literature out there. And, you know, I became very, very um, interested in it. And so 1996, as we all know, November, the California referendum passed for legalizing medical marijuana in the state of California. At the time, me in Connecticut, you know, I didn't think it was going to pass. I didn't really put much credence in it. I went in 1996 to Holland to get a prescription. At that time in Holland... Medical marijuana was legal. I went in ninth, summer of 96 to get a prescription to cover my ass when I could come back home just in case. I'd say, look, I got a prescription from a doctor, an MD. Stories of Holland, but that's another story. <laughs> well, that was that was in summer, and the referendum passed in, in California. And then in early January, right after the referendum had passed in medical marijuana in California, Barry McCaffrey, who was the drug czar at the time, came out with a statement, there's not a shred of evidence for its use medicinally. And I, of course, had been using it for seven years medicinally. So I was very, very irate about that. I wrote him a letter, explained to him, I've been using it for seven years. You know, you can't tell me that it doesn't work. I then took that letter that I wrote to him. I took away the salutation to your Barry McCaffrey. I sent it to the Hartford Courant which is the third, at the time, was the third largest newspaper in uh, New England, largest in Connecticut. And they published it on the front page of the Sunday editorial section with a beautiful illustration. Remember, this is January 1997. We, we, even us, we're all, you know, I'm talking to people in, in Quarry and, and That's Ian. okay, you can, say, you can say we're old. Yeah, no, Corey and, and we're both, we're all old, you know? Okay. But people forget, even we forget how back then, my goodness, it was unheard of for people to confess to such cannabis crimes. Well, it brought me not just on the front page of the Sunday Eritrea section with a beautiful illustration, but then two of the three, there were only three network TV stations at that time. There wasn't a Fox station, I think, in 1997. 
came to my house, interviewed me, put me on the evening news. I show my stash. This is how unique and and trailblazing it was to confess such things. Mm-hmm. There were many people using it. There were very few people confessing it. Okay. So then I testified before the Judiciary Committee of the State of Connecticut when the bill first came up because of California. Then in 1997, Connecticut also had a bill coming out for legalizing medical marijuana. I was one of only two patients who testified. Two years later, the bill came up again. I was the only patient testified. It took eight bills in the course of 15 years from 1997 until it was legalized in 2012. Every time the bill came up, more and more patients came forward from more and more different conditions. And I always testified anyway, testified in person seven of the eight times. Finally, the eighth time in 2012, they had like 15 patients coming to Hartford to testify in person, not to mention anyone who would give written testimony. I decided I'm going to sit this one out. There's enough people doing it already. It finally passed. So, well, so Mark, when you're you, you, treating yourself, is the only form that you use cannabis just smoking it, or do you do edibles sometimes or anything like that? That's a very good question. You have to remember back in the 90s and the 2000, up to 2010, the only way we had it available to us was to smoke. There wasn't all of the alternative non-smoking forms that you can get now in the dispensaries. So I was a smoker all my life, basically. I tried sprays, I tried tinctures, I tried edibles, which are called medibles. You get it from the dispensary. Well, first of all, I did have bad experiences as a recreational user trying to create my own medibles because you end up putting too much in and you're overdosing. Not dying, you know, just like you just you just want to go to sleep and hope that it's over yeah. and so that you wake up, you know, you're, you're okay again. Yeah. I never liked eating because of the, back then because of the risk of that too much. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, because you can buy it with the doses just telling you, oh, five milligrams of THC in this one particular portion, you know exactly how much you need to take. I still don't like it because I like smoking for the simple reason that it lasts a very short time as a, as a high, two or three hours, and then I go back and do the rest of whatever I want to do with the rest of my life. But I don't like the long-lasting effect. I like the high, I have to admit. I mean, as a paraplegic, my use is medicinal for below the waist, but recreational above. If I didn't enjoy the high, <laughs> I wouldn't be using it, right? I'd use all the other pharmaceutical drugs that everyone else might be using, okay? But I like to have the high only last a short time because there's other things I have to do. Reading and writing, I can't do either. I can't type when I'm high. I can't read when I'm high. Or at least not as, I think, as uh, with the same attention as otherwise. So I don't do either when I'm high, but that's my life right now. I'm a, re- I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. Yep. So in order to type, I have to be straight. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I can write with a pen when I'm high, but I can't write typing. You can't type. So, yeah. yeah. Mark, one of the things that we talk about with people on this podcast who have dealt with some very serious health issues, mainly cancer, they've, uh, you know, be given months, even weeks to live. One of the things that 
the successful people do is they change their diet. They quit eating the crappy food. And you, you've indicated that uh, for decades now you've been eating healthfully. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think people really realize the importance of eating good quality food is rather than junk food and processed food with mm-hmm. all its chemicals in it. Mm-hmm. And talk about what that's done to help you. Well, just as an instance, MS patients, multiple sclerosis, can indeed treat their disease by totally changing their diet to whole foods. It doesn't have to be macrobiotics, but it can be. It doesn't have to be raw foods, but it can be. But the two things that macrobiotics and raw foods have in common, they're both the opposite. One is all cooked foods, the other is all raw foods, is whole foods, natural foods, foods the way that they come in nature. So in other words, no white flour, no white sugar, Stay away from white salt. It's in any processed food, anything in a bottle, a can, a package. Is You go to the restaurants, it's all salt. I use no salt at home. I go out and I eat in restaurants, it all tastes salty to me because I don't like the taste of salt because I've, I've, shun, I've shed that addiction. People have addiction to salt even, okay? Salt is not necessary in the diet. You get it enough sodium from vegetables as it is. And eating never any fried food, that's the worst thing possible. You can take a very wholesome food, you know, potato, fry it into fries, and you've not only destroyed all the nutrition of the potato, but you're eating a carcinogenic substance in the heated oil. Which is rancid. The oil is rancid. Yeah, especially it's been used several times over for the potatoes in a a restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. So those, yeah. all those, everything that's called a junk food, you know, it's like, God, I can't imagine why people allow themselves to put that into their bodies. It amazes me. Uh-huh. I say it amazes Corey and I too. Yeah, yeah. It's so simple that you eat natural foods. Eat the foods that our ancestors ate, which is natural food. The stuff you get in packages, there are chemicals in there to preserve it so it'll last, have a longer shelf life. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not to say you, you people can't cheat now and then, which we do. But one of the things that su- surprises me is the amount of soda that people drink. Ah, yeah. It just it just baffles me. Water is good. At least they're getting water into their bodies. But that sugar, oh, sugar is like a drug. It's a food that acts on the body like a drug. Yeah, I was reading. I think it was about. A hundred years ago or 150 years ago that in the United States, people were consuming maybe two to four pounds of sugar a year. And now it's up to about 150 pounds per Mm. person. Yeah, yeah. And people wonder why there's an obesity problem. It's outrageous. Mark, in conclusion, can you give us your website address so people who are interested in uh, what you've written can uh, access that? Okay. My address is Mark, is www.markbronstein.org. Mark is spelled M-A-R-K. Bronstein is spelled B-R-A-U-N-S-T-E-I-N dot org, O-R-G. 
dot org, mm-hmm. not dot com dot org. Org for organic. Yeah. <laughs> ah, gotcha. Okay. Mark, great of you to do this. Thanks for reaching out to us. We greatly appreciate it. All right. And sharing your story with everyone. And sure, someone who's listening, you will help them. And we very much appreciate what you've done. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mark. Before we go, I want to let our listeners know that you can help us spread the word about the amazing, often life-saving health benefits of cannabis just by sharing the podcast writing a review, or rating us. We very much appreciate uh, the help of everyone who's done that already. And we really like the five-star ratings. We'd also like to thank those of you who support the show by making a one-time donation or a monthly donation on our Patreon page, which you can do for as little as $5 a month. It helps to keep us running. You'll find out how to do that on our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com. Thank you for your support. It means so much to us. And we'll be back again next week with another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. Thanks for listening to Cannabis Health Radio. For more information and to search previous podcasts, visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com. Subscribe so you don't miss new episodes. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This podcast is made possible by donations from our listeners. If you found the information helpful, please consider making a donation in any amount through our website. You can also help us share our message by leaving a review on your podcast listening platform. We are very grateful for your support. Thank you. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. How do cannabis CEOs balance growth and optimization strategies? What is THCO, Delta 10, and CBNA, and why should you care about these minor cannabinoids? And why is an endocannabinoid system covered in medical school? Most people think they're up to date in trends in the cannabis industry, but they're about six weeks behind. Learn about what is truly next in the cannabis space by joining myself, Brian Fields, and Kellen Finney every week on the Dime Podcast and, of course, on PodConnects.